Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is the truth of the matter is. Episode number 37. We would like to give a round of applause to all of our new and consistent listeners. Welcome, and we will also like to say thank you for tuning in. We appreciate your loyalty and dedication by just listening to what we have to say. If you don't mind, please tell a friend, a family member, an acquaintance, or even an enemy about our podcast. And if you like it and it's been a blessing to you, if it's not much to ask, please leave a comment a rating as well we really appreciate your contribution by getting the word out about us now without further ado i'm your host daniel and i'm with jonathan jonathan how's life and how are things going i'm doing well daniel thank you so much for asking you know i've also had the opportunity to reflect and i'm always talking about reflecting but you know i've been thankful for what god has done for me I would call this period, you know, a time of appreciation. And also, you know, I'm in a period in time in my life where at the moment I'm in a process of executing a plan. Now, this plan requires time and I understand it's a process and I, I'm doing my best and I'm giving it all that I got. You know, I'm also enjoying the challenge while also pressing forward with the right spirit and the right mentality. That's really been a new wrinkle, a new approach that I've added when it comes to fulfilling tasks and requesting and working with others. You know, there's a beautiful passage in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23, that says, Whatever you do, Whatever your task may be, work from the soul, that is, put in your best effort. And that's something done for the Lord and not for men. I want to read that one more time. Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul, that is, put in your best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men. You know, sometimes I like to stop and really embrace the word of God because of its truth. Now, whether we agree or disagree on that has nothing to do with what we want. And yet the power of truth doesn't care. It doesn't matter when one thinks the power of truth stands on its own. And my opinion doesn't need defending. I also would like to Understand fully what it takes to do such a task when we read in that verse, which says, Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put in your best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men. I would say it starts with wisdom, right? Showing the ability to discern the courage to choose what is beneficial over what is impulsive. I would say it takes practice as well. You know it takes time to change your approach and mentally on various things. 
For an example, let's use the disk drainer. Let's go with a manual one. The objective of having a dish drainer is when you wash your dish and forks, spoons, and knives, you place them in the dish drainer to dry. But once they are dry, you put them away. Now, if they aren't being put away and they are just remaining in the dish drainer, then I would like to believe it becomes frustrating because now you're just leaving them in there. And that's what creates a mess. That's what messes with the cycle, the natural order of things becomes more work. So if you decide to remove the dish drainer, you are now forced to hand dry and not sit and let it dry on its own. The goal is now you have to put them away. Now the challenge is that takes time. That takes time of getting used to doing something completely different. Before you had the dishes in the dish drainer, you let them dry. And occasionally, I would say, you probably forget that you have to put them away. But now, when you take away the dish drainer, you're required instantly after washing to dry with a cloth and then put them away. So that's what I mean by having to make an adjustment with a new additional thing added in in regards to removing the dish drainer. At one point, it was convenient, and now it's no longer convenient. Now you're forced to have to adapt and add an additional activeness to what you're already doing. And that takes time to adjust. It takes time to embrace the new approach that you've added in. Now let's keep reading into verse 24, because I think it's important that we read this verse as well. It says, knowing with all certainty... That it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance, which is your greatest reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you actually serve. Let me repeat that again. I'm just making sure we repeat these verses again so you really hone in. And sometimes the third, fourth, fifth time of reading the verse helps you really grasp. Maybe you missed something. Maybe you haven't completely Consider each element when you come into a comma, when there's a period. But this is what verse 24 says. Knowing with all certainty that is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance, which is your greatest reward. It is the Lord Christ who you actually serve. So every time you do things from the bottom of your heart merely it looks like it's for the work of men or women but actually it's for Christ that's what verse Colossians 3.23 through verse 24 is really telling you that when you put your hand to the plow understand that all things are from God to God and through God we're just using these things here okay now Daniel do you remember in middle school and high school, one of the major things we used to comprehend when it came to reading passes, the five W's, you know, the who, your what, your when, and your why when it comes to reading passages? I would say implement that same mentality when it comes to your own personal life in a various amount of ways. Reading God's word will help you understand your who, your what, your when, and your why. 
Operating in faith is also another essential element to success as well. So, Dane, do you remember the five W's? I do remember them, actually. It was, uh, what was that, first grade you learned that? I think so. Five W's? Yeah. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you still apply it? Hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that. Um, I try not to really focus on the win so much mm. because I feel like when you focus on when things are happening, it can create some type of anxiety or it um can put an unnecessary amount of pressure on you to get things done. And sometimes your work can become rushed or you start to compare yourself to when other people are getting things done or a certain timeline that is more of a societal thing that people want you to have certain things accomplished, um, accomplished by certain age. And it kind of, that win is, I feel like it's very dangerous. But one thing you mentioned at the beginning is that you focus mostly on doing your best and Keeping your what in mind, I think, is probably the most important thing. Trying to remember what you're doing and in terms of the other W, why you're doing it. I find that it tends to relieve the pressure that you feel about your win. Gotcha. And uh-huh. sometimes if you have a who, like you, it, not may, it may not only be yourself, but it can also be other people that you find are really important to you and you know just looking at them or maybe walking past them or maybe a memory or something like that comes to you within the day and it kind of refocuses you on what your what and your why is so the only one i really don't practice and you know in short summary is the win the one really focus on the win okay even when i read scripture and context I focus on the five W's. Who is it about? What is it about? When was this written? Who was it written for? Why was it written? Right? So I, for some reason, find the five W's very entertaining when it comes to reading things. Very entertaining when it comes to understanding people. Very entertaining when it comes to figuring things out. What do you mean by entertaining? It's entertaining because there are a lot of things that transpired in communication with people. And there are some people that are really good at hiding things. But when you understand why they're hiding things, then you sort of pick up their approach and why their approach is the way that it is. I think it's entertaining, not in a funny way, but entertaining because it's sort of like getting to know somebody and understanding what their pet peeves are, understanding how they come and arrive at decisions and conclusions. It sort of puts things in proper perspective. So rather than they tell you, honestly, if you're discerning who they are, you're discerning what the situation is, you've already figured it out. Whether or not they want to come clean or not, it's totally up to them. 
And this is, to me, how you sort of discern the situation or predicament. And you make much more critical, not just evaluations, but your moves in regards to how you approach it change. You know, you know what to avoid, what to entertain, what to stay away from. Because you're gathering information, insight to how to appropriately handle whatever it is that you're in. So that's why I think the five W's are important. And you're you're putting clues together to figure out, okay, I understand this. Okay, I know what the situation is. And it's great when you're developing relationships, too, because you know what line to cross, what line not to cross. You know what button to push, what button not to push. And to me, that's what sort of creates the dynamic of the relationship to last so long, because you're figuring it out as you go. You're processing, you're caring about the person that you're handling and you're dealing with. And that's how you keep things flowing. And there's no corruption. There's no. A situation that's unsettling because you know what the person expects and how to handle it. So me, this I can go on for days, the numerous right of ways of how I used the five W's, how I've chosen to use the five W's. I've sort of. You know, I, I major in philosophy, man. I, I find a way to expand upon the simple things that we learn in middle school and high school, and I use it to benefit me. And I can talk about that another time, but that's what I try to do. Interesting. Yeah. Now, before we move on to celebrate Black History Month, we're going to embrace an individual that many might not know about, and they have contributed to society in a mighty way. Now, I hope everybody is ready. So, Daniel, can I get my drum roll, please? Ladies and gentlemen, we are giving flowers to William Joseph Seymour. William Joseph Seymour. So, William Joseph Seymour was an African American minister, a catalyst of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. William Seymour not only rejected the existing racial barriers in favor of the unite in Christ, but he also rejected then almost universal barriers to women in any form of church leadership. William Joseph Seymour was born in Centralville, Louisiana on May 2nd, 1870 to a former slave. At the age of 25, he moved to Indianapolis, where he worked as a railroad porter and then waited tables in a fashionable restaurant. Around this time, he contracted smallpox and went blind in his left eye. In 1903, Seymour moved to Houston, Texas in search of his family. Then he joined a small holiness church pastor by a black woman named Lucy Farrow. He was kicked out because of his theology on several things and then started the revival meeting. He started the revival meeting on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, extended from 1906 until 1909 and became the subject of intense investigation by many mainstream Protestants. 
Some calls seem more heretic, while others accepted his teaching and returned to their congregation to expound them. The resulting movement became a widely known as Pentecostalism. While there have been similar manifestations of the Spirit in the past, the current worldwide Pentecostal and Charismatic movement are generally agreed to have been, in part, outgrowths of Seymour's ministry and the Azusa Street Revival. For many years, the pivotal role of Seymour was almost ignored by church historians. Partly, no doubt, because he was African-American. This shameful neglect, however, is finally ending as more and more students of Pentecostal history learn of the importance of William Joseph Seymour's role in the formation of the Pentecostal movement. Now, just to add my little two cents, if you wish to learn more about Seymour, there's a documentary on YouTube called the Azusa Street Revival Documentary. It's about 44 minutes long about. You should check it out because it's very informative. You will also learn the birth, or what some may say, the development and or growth and of Pentecostal's denomination. Well, you will also learn about the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Stanio, any comments about what I just read? I find it interesting that um, a lot of these people suffer some type of hardship, like losing an eye and contracting smallpox, having to move around, and then on top of it, uh, people kicking you out of the church because of your beliefs. That's that's tough. That's really uh, tough. But I like the perseverance that we see within each of these individuals and the ability to move forward and try to create something that they believe in, regardless to whether anybody else didn't believe in it. He was able to be a crucial part of a whole movement. So uh-huh. shout out to William J., man. Uh-huh. What I would say is, you know how it is. Anytime you go against the status quo, you're not liked. Even Jesus wasn't liked and went against the status quo. And the reality to the situation and many others is you don't get written about when you follow the rules. You actually get written about when you're a little bit radical, right? When you challenge what the status quo is. I think more people are more inclined to remember you for your historical stance and something that you firmly believe in also, right? Because if you just go with the flow and you never challenge anything, then a lot of times things never change. They remain exactly the same. The structure of how things are never improve. They remain exactly the way it is. Sort of like how people view racism, right? Or when racism occurs in predicaments and situations, there has to be someone that points it out for change to occur. Because if it doesn't, then things will remain the same and there will be no progress, you know? That's sort of what the predicament is. Even in this story, just a little cut from the documentary when Seymour was being taught the word of God and just how you know these people weren't interpreting the scripture correctly right because right out of Genesis it tells you clearly that we were all made in God's image 
However, they had Seymour outside of the classroom and his white counterparts were in the classroom and he can only listen from outside the classroom when they were teaching the word of God. And it's like if you're teaching the word of God and you have the audacity to mitigate a goal to put somebody outside the classroom and tell them that they ought to learn from God, not on equal playing fields as everybody else, but from outside the classroom. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But this is a society that he grew up in at the time where segregation was a real thing, even in the church. That's how ignorant racism was, that we're supposed to be serving God as one nation, right, as one people in the body of Christ, and yet people embraced it as if they were better, as if we couldn't all come together to serve God because we understand that God accepts all worship from all different cultures. And yet the theology that was being taught there was problematic. And I guess the theology that he brought up wasn't well understood, but rather neglected, ignored, told it made no sense. And look at the change he has made. So it's amazing how you see things transition and how things are impacted based upon one man's courage to do something against the status quo. Well said. Yeah. All right, let's get into prayer. So, oh God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you and we honor you. We thank you because all things are from you, for you, and through you. We thank you because through you we live and move and have our beating, our being. We thank you, Lord, because you declared that no one can take your life away and therefore your willingness to sacrifice yourself voluntarily meant you thought about each and every one of us when you went to the cross for our iniquities, our sin. Lord, we honor you because you operated in your authority to lay it down and also take it up in order to redeem us. We should never forget that because by laying your life down for us, you have loved us, not by words or speech, but by actions and in truth. We honor you because you show no favoritism, but instead you've judged and continue to judge righteously. We honor you because you oppose the proud and show no favoritism, but only to those who are humble and are the oppressed. Lord, please allow us to thank you and honor you today as we go to your word for insight, divine direction. Please, Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So. What is the topic for discussion today? We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? They use interchangeably. So let's get started. So we're going to look at Luke chapter. We're continuing in the, the series of Luke, right? The gospel of Luke. We're going to look at chapter 13, verse 18 through 30. Then Jesus asks, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew 
and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside, knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer. I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of chief. And where you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. All right, great job, Daniel. So let's get started, right? Let's go to work here. The kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven, has its place in history and also has its place as it relates to two realms of existence. When I say it has its place in history, we're going to call it biblical history, right? We're going to kind of narrow that down, right? So the biblical history presents Israel as God's earthly people and nation. As king, you then have the body of Christ, also known as the church where God rules, the heavenly beings, and the Lord and head. Right? So let me repeat that. You then have the body of Christ, also known as the church where God rules the heavenly beings as Lord and as head. And then you have God who rules over all in heaven. And all who inhabited the earth. Right? So I'm giving you the breakdown of how this concept is and how it's viewed. It's almost like a Venn diagram, right? Place each of those elements in two different sections of the diagram. And the outside element of the diagram is where you have God who rules over all in heaven and all who inhabit the earth. Right? It's just the view, the biblical view, right? Simply put, God has, which means past tense, and is, which means present tense, historically been here. And if you believe in the invisible spirit realm, just as much as the earthly spiritual realm, then God is present in both and rules over both. Okay? 
And I would like to say a lot of us hold the view that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a place. The answer to that question is yes, it is a place. However, guess what? It's also a mindset. So let's look up mindset. Mindset. A set of beliefs that shape how you make sense of the world and yourself. It influences how you think, feel, and behave in any given situation. Very good. Now, here's what I would say about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven from a biblical standpoint. Are you ready for this? This is what it is. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven hasn't come yet and yet has come and yet is still to come. Let me repeat that. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has it not come, and yet has come, and yet is still to come. So, it has not come, and yet it has come, and yet it is still to come. So, why did I say that? It has not come because Jesus didn't come back as of yet. And there's still so much prophecy that has to be fulfilled. Now, it has come, and you might say, well, how? And I would tell you, Jesus declared it in the Gospels. Let's go to them. Now, before we do that, let's put it in our mind that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven isn't just a place. It's also a mindset. This should help you understand the scriptures for today and moving forward. Finally, it's still to come because that is something that all believers are looking forward to. When all things are put under Jesus' feet. And then he hands the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God back over to the Father. So let's look at a few verses before we address the verse for today. Let's look at Mark chapter 1 verse 15 and it says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here in this text, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. Let's go to Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, when you look at this, this is something Jesus says that we should seek, right? We should go after. We should attempt to reach. Let's look at Luke 17.20. Verse, let's look at Luke 17 verses 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So again, the narrative is that the kingdom of God is a place. And the Pharisees are saying, Well, if it's a place, then what's the sign? And Jesus is saying, Well, there will be no evidence or sign of when the kingdom of God is present. But he does say it's in the midst. Very interesting terminology of what Jesus is using here to describe what the kingdom of God is. Let's go to Matthew twelve twenty-eight. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, very interesting. Let's go to Matthew five ten. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. There you go. Now, as you can see in some of those verses, we recognize that it's a place. But also, we see that it's a mindset, especially the last one that we just read, Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven right that's the mentality that's the mindset right now we see that it's a mindset not just a physical place because jesus brings the kingdom mindset to his people and moves and operates in it now the reason why we went through this because it will better help you understand the passages that we're going to look at in luke right luke 13 18 to 30 now Let's go back and address them. Let's start with Luke 13, verses 18 through 19. We're going to approach this section by section. Then Jesus asks, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Now, interesting, right? The reason why Jesus uses mustard seed here is because it's one of the smallest seeds, and yet it can grow into a huge tree. Jesus, in my humble opinion, is saying that although the kingdom of God starts small, it's not a matter of how you start. But it's how you finish. And we can attest to this, that the kingdom grew and is now has spread across the world to unlimited numbers of followers today. The most growing belief out there is Christianity, actually. In this example, Jesus says that the tree grows and now you have birds who settle within the structure and they've become part of its, you know, peak reach of fulfillment. Let's look at the other example Jesus provides in verse 20 through 21 of Luke 13. Again, he asks, What shall compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Yeah, so upon looking at several translations, there are two words used, yeast and leaven or leavener. Now, interesting enough, there are four types of leavening agents. Those are yeast, baking soda, baking soda and cream of tar, right? So it's yeast, baking powder, sorry, baking powder, baking soda, and cream of tar. So technically, the term used in the NIV, yeast, is really a type of leaven. And that word is used in the ESV, English Standard Version, the KJV, King James Version, and the NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible. Now, what leaven does, and uh, what leaven does is that it's a living organism in leaven that grows overnight so that by morning, the entire quantity of dough has been affected. So, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven 
in this context, has the effect of spreading through a town, a city of people, just like leaven, when mixed in 60 pounds of flour, it works itself through the dough, right? And it causes it to grow. So, two very interesting examples that Jesus has provided here. Now, let's break down Luke 13, but we're going to go from 22 to 30. So, Daniel, can you reread that portion, please? Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, You will stand outside, knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. All right, great job. Now, when we look at verse 24 and it says, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them. And Jesus responds, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, that's a very interesting point. And I find it interesting because in Luke, there isn't a comparison. So you might be saying, well, what do you mean by comparison? Let's look at Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14, and it says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Yeah, so as a reader, I have to ask myself, why is Luke saying make every effort to enter through the narrow door? Because many, I tell you, will try to enter, but will not be able to. And Matthew is saying enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow, the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. If I'm thinking critically, Luke wants us to realize that even though there will be many who attempt, many won't get in. And I believe that highlights the lifestyle along with your way of living. Are you living a Christian difference? Has your life been transformed? Are you improving in your walk? Are you drawing near to God as he draws near to you? How's your prayer life? Does he know who you are? I think. The key factor, because as we continue to read from verse 24 to 30, we hear this. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south. And will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Yeah, so we spoke about how the last will be first, and the first will be last element. But briefly, again, to work, and working for someone else, you don't really get to dictate the rules because you agreed to work no matter how long or how short the time was. It's the commitment that you agreed to that matters. Right. We talked about that, I believe, a few episodes back in one of the stories in regards to the men that were all agreed upon working for a Daenerys and coming to the vineyard to work. And there was a complaint, obviously, about those who will, who have committed and that were working earlier. Then you had those in midday that came and then you had those in the end that came and yet they all received the same Daenerys that they agreed upon. Right. So now when we look at Matthew seven thirteen through 14, the difference there is in life, you have two options. What is hard and what is easy? Can you imagine the difficulty it takes to go through something that's narrow? You sort of have to f- force your way through it. As for abroad, everyone is going through it. Right. It's least path of resistance. I think we can all agree that we want things to come easily, but any time that requires serious work and time and effort, we tend to pass on, right? There are reasons why things are hard and there are reasons why things are easy. If you take the harder route, everything along the way builds your faith, right? And God fashions your character, right? So I think where we're getting these comparisons It's because God wants you to understand that you're going to be battle tested. And in that element of being battle tested, you're learning, you're growing, you're becoming a new person with new experiences and new situations that you probably didn't consider or imagine. And it's those things that you you're sort of learning on the job as you're going through life. You're, You're learning. Right. God is a God of process. He wants you to go through these things, right? Because when you get there, you appreciate it, right? There's a beautiful passage where Jesus is talking to Paul. And he talks about how the devil seeks to swoop him like, I believe it's like, I think it's butter. But Jesus says that I fail, that your faith fail you not, right? And in the end, you're going to come out differently, right? You're going to come out a completely different person. So, you know, in the book of James, it says, consider it pure joy when you face trials and tribulations to know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish his work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If anyone lacks anything, let them ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Right. 
So the embracement of the challenge is what God wants you to understand. And in that process, that's where your faith changes. In that process, that's where you develop and you become a person that understands that in life, there are no easy passages, right? And if there are easy passages, you have to be curious as to why it's so easy, right? Why am I walking through this experience and not being tested, right? So that leads me to ask me, ask you, Daniel, is there any experience that you want to share that when you did something the harder way, it was better off? Or when you did something the easier way, it was better off? What would you say? Any examples that you could think of? Mm, can you rephrase the question? Okay. It's a little bit clearer. So in life, has there ever been a point in time when you've reached a challenge and in that challenge, you came out a better person, right? In that challenge, you embraced it and you walked out feeling better about yourself and it's helped and has helped you immensely in other tasks that you approached. Or are there points in times that you went an easy route and upon going an easy route you probably realize that there's so much more you could have learned but instead of embracing the challenge you found out the harder way that you weren't prepared you were ill-prepared rather and things along the way when you took that easy path easy now so to simplify it um you're basically asking is there a time when doing things the harder way was better off than doing it and what may have appeared to be easier. So that first element, you can just address that. Has there been points in life where you did something that was challenging and you learned multitudes of, through that experience, great things that has helped you along the way in life? We can start there. Okay. So to answer the question, uh, it takes me back to third grade. Okay. And then into fourth grade. If you remember a long time ago, we competed in a chess tournament. You was in fourth grade. I was in third. Okay. And I finished eighth place in that tournament. Now, I was pretty much every time the way uh, I was one of the first people to get up for pretty much, I think it was the first three matches. Because I was just hitting everybody with the scholars mate. Because those people didn't know how to defend it. And I went into every single match doing that up to that point because most people, like I said, didn't know how to defend it. And I, I just thought, well, if nobody's defending it up to this point, um, it should be a pretty easy tournament. So I underestimated the people in the tournament because of how easily I was winning. And then I ran into somebody who knew how to defend the scholars mate. And I think that was the fourth round. Wait, what is the scholars mate for those who know about chess but won't? be able to identify that it's basically when you take pretty much four moves to uh ah, okay yeah. <laughs> you set up the bishop on side one side you set up the queen that. on the other you attack one square on the board and it's pretty much an easy mate gotcha it's like the easiest checkmate possible yeah i the remember fastest that one you can use yeah so I was winning that. I was just winning quickly because of that. I'm just laughing. And then I ran bro. into that guy who won the tournament that year. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if I didn't take a shortcut and I just played my game the way I normally would play chess, the way I was taught, 
by, you know, you and my, my father and Mr. Rusty. I felt like I wouldn't have lost that tournament. Mm. So, you finished second that year. That guy finished first, and I finished eighth. And I was immensely upset. So, I dedicated the whole next year, when I knew there would be a tournament again in the fourth grade, to really practicing and really taking the time out to always think about every move that I was doing and not just going for the easy scholar mate. And in the fourth grade tournament, because I did things properly and what was the harder way of, you know, taking the time to develop your pieces and get them out efficiently and pick uh, good squares and stuff for them for anybody who plays chess. I end up winning the tournament. Yeah, I remember that. So, yeah. That's taught me a very valuable lesson in life to never do things in ways that appear easier and to always take the time to do things the hard way or the right way because overall you learn more things about not just chess, learn more things about your opponent and you learn more things about yourself and understand what it's like to go through hardship and to uh, what it takes to work towards achieving a goal. So Mm -hmm. That's a good example. My example is related to football, obviously. The issue that I found amongst my classmates or teammates is everybody wanted to play football, right? But a lot of people didn't want to do the condition. They didn't want to run those hills. They didn't want to run those sprints. I used to run anywhere from 16 to 20, 120-yard sprint. I used to condition myself really, really harsh because the thing is, is that if you're talented, sure. But what makes you a supreme athlete, at least on your team, is your ability to be in phenomenal shape. So I used to see people show up because, yeah, they can play football. But when it came to being in good shape and it came to being prepared for game-like activity, people won't be able to stay on the field. People weren't stretching. People weren't doing these essential elements in the fitness aspect. So that when it came to playing the game that you love, you can do it efficiently. You can do it in a way where not only are you supreme, but everything about you from a physical element has stepped up. You know, if you remember, Alan Iverson used to say practice. What's practice? Right. But I embrace the exercise element, lifting weights, right. Becoming stronger, being more flexible, doing yoga for period of time and when i got out there i felt good about myself i felt confident about myself why because i conditioned myself in the best way possible so that when it came to the football element i'm still learning but i'm not out there passing out i'm not out there dying of thirst i'm not out there struggling my back isn't tight right my hamstrings don't hurt you know i don't have some of these issues because i've elected to just show up because they hear that football is being played and they don't understand that along that time of just playing football, there's other things you got to do, right? You got to exercise. You got to do drills. You got to do warm-ups. You got to jog. Our coach used to make us jog for water, right? So a lot of those different things taught some people there that, hey, I might be talented, but I am no way, in a sense, prepared to make it through hell week because I didn't do anything leading up to this moment. 
And it was during that moment, not only did I feel really confident, but it gets to a point where you shift from being nervous to being really confident because you've done all the work, all the sweat, all the tears of stress that you put yourself through to this moment. And when you got out there, you're comfortable and you're ready to go. So rather than being taking the easy way of just showing up because I love football and I want to play, I took the harder route of being prepared and working out and waking up in the mornings, right, when no one's watching. And then when I showed up, people already acknowledged and realized that I was superior in that way. I was superior in that way. I took the whole situation serious. And it paid off. It paid off so much because when you're out there running sprints and you're looking at the man next to you and he's breathing hard, you're just like, hey, take a couple of breaths in. Relax. He's just, he's gone, man. He's, he's not looking good. And I remember <laughs> I had a friend in high school that used to tell me, because he's the one that got me on this because he used to play college football and everything. At one point, he was semi a mentor. Like, just in dialogue and conversation, what it takes to be great. And he used to be like, man, I used to tell people when I saw them like that, go home. Go bake some cookies or something. Right? That's what he used to go tell. He used to say he used to tell people because you're not ready. Like, you're not ready to do this. Like, you weren't prepared. You came ill-prepared. And from that move, from that point moving forward, that was my approach, man. Being the best possible shape ever. Don't show any signs of weakness. And when it comes to being on that field, show the reason why you belong. That's my story. Most well Yeah, of just being prepared and being ready and going the harder route versus taking the easier route. All right. Now, we're going to end with this beautiful passage in Hebrews 12, 6. And I want Daniel to read this. Four times. And then I'm going to ask Dan what he thinks. And then I'm going to tell you what it says. And then we're going to close out with devotion. So Hebrews 12, 6, Daniel. For the Lord disciplines and corrects those whom he loves. And he punishes every son whom he receives and welcomes to his heart. So that's great verse because we understand that through these tests and trials and building your character and building your faith comes the times where God is allowing things to occur right like well why are these things happening to me because eventually you have to understand that God gives his toughest battle to those who he believes can handle it and every tough situation that comes in God's not going to speak sometimes Sometimes God's relying on your ability when faced with those challenges, not to let those challenges succumb you, right? Not bring you down, but instead you're supposed to arise, to supersede, to overcome what those challenges may be. Now, this is the last verse that I want Daniel to read today, to read four times. And it comes out of Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what did you think? What do you think it means, Daniel? It's not a matter of physical things or physical pleasures, but of more of a type of fulfillment that you get out of doing the right thing and being able to communicate well and coexist with others. And therefore, you'll be able to find joy, not only in the spiritual realm, but also with people around you. That's a good way of viewing it. This is what I would say. We enjoy food and drinks. I don't know anybody that's ever said they've never enjoyed any type of beverage and any type of food that they've eaten. However, when it comes to the kingdom of God mindset, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven mindset, it's not a matter sometimes of what we eat and what we drink. Those are the things that we like. However, it's a matter of righteousness. So righteousness can be used as something like godly conduct, right? How you carry yourself, how you handle yourself, the way that you operate, the way that you move, right? And out of that righteousness, because if we go to First Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 21, Jesus, there's something that Paul said. He says, he who was without sin became sin for us so that we may be the righteousness of God. So at one point, when it comes to it's the, the, the reason why it's so important when it comes to us receiving righteousness is because of what because of Adam's transgressions with sin. We were marked with sin. We were born into sin. Jesus' death on the cross and us reuniting with Jesus Christ by accepting him as Lord over our life. We are now able to stand in the presence of God with Jesus Christ's righteousness on us. So now we can stand in his presence confidently. Now we bear the image of Christ because his righteousness was given to us for those who accept him. So now we can stand in God's presence with confidence, with boldness. So when we think about conduct, right? Christ's life his story, things that we look at for inspiration, right? For the perfect example. That's what we look to. That's what we model our life after. So when we see that and we understand that, right? And we go back to Romans 14, 7, that's not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness. That's how we then pursue things like peace, right? That's what we do. When Paul talks about these things later in Romans about the desire to request or the desire to seek out peace, it's because that means that we're operating with a desire to get along with one another. And we're doing that in joy. So we talked about the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is something that that transpires within. Happiness, that's something that transpires outside of us that is there only temporarily. 
And we do all of this through the Holy Spirit. Right? So we have to understand, at least in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven mindset, that part of doing those things is dying to yourself. What I mean dying to yourself. That means that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the life that you used to live, the habits that you used to have, right? The things that you used to succumb to, the things that you enjoyed, you have to let those things go. You have to let those things go because by letting those things go, you can then embrace the righteousness that God wants for you. And therefore, you start to move and operate with his stewardship, his guidance and his divine protection. And that's how you achieve righteousness. That's how you achieve peace. That's how you de-escalate things when you encounter people that are argumentative and negative, right? And you do those things through the Holy Spirit, right? You do those things through love, kindness, generosity. All those things is because you have the right mentality, right? Last thing when we think about James, when he says, consider it pure joy. Not just that verse, but there's another verse. When it says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because anger does not produce the righteousness that God our Father desires. So those sorts of behaviors that you normally will pick up when you're angry and frustrated, you then start to approach things like a dove. You then start to approach things in a much more matter of peace. You're trying to settle things, right, where things appear to be confrontational, right? We understand through confrontation. There's a solution. So everything that you do now, you're operating in what we see here in Romans 14, 12. And that is what the kingdom of God is. So again, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot we talked about today. It's a lot to consider. But I just encourage everyone out there that by reading your Bible, you then, matter of fact, we'll say this, we'll narrow it down. Just by reading the four Gospels, you get a better, a bigger picture of how to operate in the kingdom of God mindset. And when you do that, you start to see, as we talked about last week, that every time you see Jesus, you see God. And the way that you see God handle things is the way that you should learn to handle things. And when you do that, you start to see a shift, a change, even to those who come with the wrong mentality, as something you said day a few weeks back too. Your approach is so pure and with so much peace that the person who's coming with that mentality has no choice but to reconsider the way that they viewed what they viewed. And now they have to conform to the energy or the efforts or the mentality that you're bringing to the situation so is there anything you want to add Daniel before we go to devotion no uh-huh. okay so let's head to devotion now we'll call this one transformers Paul outlined the process of transformation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 First believers encounter God with unveiled faces all pretense and self-righteousness are stripped away you see yourself 
clearly and know who and what you are. A sinner in need of a savior. A weakling in need of strength. And a fool in need of wisdom. Second, you contemplate the Lord's glory. Like Moses, you're transformed by pressing into the glory of God. You grasp his truth, majesty, and the infinite wonder of his love. You're overwhelmed in his presence. Third, all of this comes from the Lord. You can't do any of it, no matter how hard you try, how disciplined, rule-keeping, or religious you are. You remain a sinner. If God doesn't change you, you can't change. Fourth, you're transformed into his image. Your destiny is to be like Jesus. And finally, you're transformed with every increasing glory. Transformation is a process, not an event. Transformation is a process, not an event. You keep changing and will never experience all the glory he longs to give you. And out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 in the NIV version, it says, And we all are being transformed into his image. Just a little thing to keep in mind for the week as you continue to go through your walk and your spiritual journey you are in the process of transforming you are in the process of becoming better and it is very important to try and do do with all your effort all your might and do the best that you can don't judge yourself too harshly but do and continue to strive I also pray so. Dear God, please continue to work in my life day after day, even on days when I feel far from you, unspiritual and unworthy, when I'm feeling sloth or I'm feeling unmotivated or I just can't seem to find the strength. Fuel me with your strength. And I would like to say thank you for never giving up on me now or in the future. In your holy name we say, Amen. Amen.